Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling the tough challenges we face. Today we're tackling one of the most important issues in American culture today, racism, and the history of racism from the inception of the nation now known as the United States. There's never been a time of equality among races, and there's never been a time that white people at large have not seen white as the superior and dominant race on the basis of being considered clean. And over the past couple centuries, many people now considered white were not previously considered white. How did that happen? I'm so pleased to be speaking with environmental historian and professor of sustainability studies at Pratt Institute, Carl Zimring, author of Clean and White, a history of environmental racism in the United States. In Clean and White, Carl takes us on a journey through the environmental racism that has been the earmark of race relations in the United States, starting at the beginning, reflecting on Thomas Jefferson's racist ideas, who simultaneously believed that equality for all races must be the goal to create the fruition of America's constitutional promises. Meanwhile, having six children with Sally Hemings, who was black. While some have referred to her as his mistress, she was more accurately his property. Her family had been inherited by Martha, Jefferson's wife. Where do racist ideas start? Environmental racism is an age-old theme of equating cleanliness with whiteness, including working in professions that clean, clothes, streets, sewers, and more, and cleanliness in living areas, to mention only a few. Clean and White outlines how social, economic, media, from news to advertising, political and cultural practices have enforced that notion, and in a sense, not allowing cleanliness to define any other race than white. I'll never forget Joe Biden, who would become his vice president, referring to Barack Obama as clean. Thank you so much for making time for Deep Dive, Carl. First, have I correctly and fairly characterized your book? Yes, uh, Colleen, thank you for speaking with me. And uh, if there's any way to devise a synopsis of this sprawling book, that is an excellent one. Thank you. Oh, thank you. How do you define environmental racism? Well, environmental racism, as I talk about in the beginning of the book, uh, there is a history of what we usually think of as environmental racism, which is in the 1970s and 1980s, a number of communities of color uh, responded to waste sites in their communities as being racially located. Um, there was a very high profile um, protest in North Carolina around a PCB dump. There were other protests in places like Chicago and Houston as well. And from there, in the late 20th century, a lot of activists started to define environmental racism as the shunting environmental burdens upon communities of color, often involving waste. And a lot of historians have looked at this late 20th century version of it. One of my goals with the book is to look at the deep history of the conditions that led to these environmental burdens being applied in systematically racist ways. And my initial inspiration for the book was actually accident. My first book 
is a history of scrap recycling practices in the United States from the end of the 18th century till the end of the 20th century. And as I was researching that book, it became unavoidable that the labor involved in handling wastes, um, at least in that particular industry, were non-native born white Americans, however we would define white. And in fact, some of the sources that I looked at in there had come to the similar conclusions. There's a geographer in Chicago working in the 1950s named Gerald Gutenschwager, who was looking at the location of the scrap iron trade. And what he discovers is between the 1920s and the 1950s, the vast majority of these businesses are located in majority African-American neighborhoods. He's writing that more than 25 years before the term environmental racism becomes used. Um, so the conditions for systematic environmental burdens are deep-seated in American history, and that was part of my goal in writing this book. Tell us about people who only decades ago, by the way, were not considered white and therefore clean, but who are today. Sure. Um, indeed. Uh, what, one of the fascinating things for me about being a historian is a lot of what we assume as being static and immutable in society has a history, that things change over time. I am by no means original or pathbreaking in what I'm about to say this notion that white identity is something that forms over time and over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, people who had previously not been considered white become white. Um, David Rediger wrote a phenomenal book called The Wages of Whiteness in how some working class people from Eastern and Southern Europe were not considered white in the late 19th, early 20th century, and then later achieved it, including often upward economic mobility. Um, Nell Irvin Painter, phenomenal historian, retired from Princeton, has a book called The History of White People, where she looks at how we first start calling people white. Because initially, these um, racial designations based on color were not significant in American society, and that was a demarcation used to delineate um, settlers from African-born slaves and indigenous Americans. Uh, prior, prior to um, using the term white, we used Christian and savage in an attempt to delineate. That kind of broke down when it turned out a lot of African-origin uh, slaves uh, converted to Christianity. How can you have a slave who's been converted to Christianity? Different types of um, justifications have to come through and the biological justifications related to skin color and some other physical characteristics by the beginning of the 19th century become far more prevalent. So who were those people? Who were those people? Like we're talking about Italians, we're talking about Jews. Oh, yeah. we're talking Italians, about... Jews, Poles, um, Slavs um, would be people. And actually also the Irish as well. A lot of the types of work that I go into that uh, we call dirty work, where you're dealing with uh, sanitation. Before the Civil War, a lot of them are, are done by first generation immigrants, many of whom were becoming from places like Ireland, or in the case of many of the Jews, Germany. In the period uh, between the Civil War and World War II, that shifts to the peoples from Southern and Eastern Europe more prevalently. And um, 
what first, second, and even in some cases, third generation immigrants of Jewish, uh, Italian, uh, or otherwise Mediterranean heritage would be working in what we could call the waste trades, scrap recycling, garbage, laundry, domestic housekeeping, uh, and, and so on. One of the trends that seemed to come up uh, over time is after World War II, a lot of these people managed to get out of the waste trades. So you'd have a lot of older Jewish scrap dealers, and this is the background of my first book, decrying the fact that their kids go to college, they get law degrees, they get business degrees, and they, go, they don't go into the family business anymore. They do something more respectable. Italians, you'd have similar discussions going the same way, where it'd be the grandkids who have assimilated into white society. Chapter 7 of the book, in fact, talks a lot about this notion of the American white ethnic, which becomes a big thing in sociology in the 1960s, where people have become proud of their immigrant roots as something of a distancing. We were immigrants then, we're American now. And just to give some personal uh, angle on this, my grandfather, who was uh, born in Iowa to Jewish migrants from Austria and the Ukraine, very much considered himself American, not Jewish American, but American, uh, in a way of distancing himself from those roots. And his father was a scrap dealer. He most assured, and my grandfather uh, assuredly did not go into the business that his father had started. Well, successful propaganda campaigns have given Americans a visceral notion of clean and not clean when it comes to race, no matter how false the facts. How did the Civil War figure into this conflation? Oh, let's see. Uh, this could be the rest of the podcast, but to try to be succinct, uh, one major problem in the Civil War was the massive death toll. Uh, and much of the death toll happened not because of wounds from firearms, but from infectious diseases. Uh, so during the Civil War, there were great concerns over sanitary practices. Florence Nightingale helps to revolutionize nursing to make sure there are cleaner places for wounded patients to stay. And so concern over hygiene is at a arguably a high by the middle of the 19th century. Now, it's not just the Civil War. At the same time, the United States is urbanizing, and one of the problems with urban society is putting lots of people in close quarters and having the number of people overwhelm the ability of the ecosystem to manage what they're doing. Uh, that's a polite way for saying urban Americans were inundated in their own fecal matter. Well, and also at the time, and this is what I love about your book, bringing these things to our attention, it wasn't just people. It was horses. It was animals. Oh, yes. Horses, pigs, livestock. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I have to uh, give credit to my dissertation advisor at Carnegie Mellon University back almost 50 years ago, Joel Tarr, really started to revolutionize thinking about horses as an environmental problem in the urban city. He actually has a book called The Horse in America. Not only did they poop and pee in the street, but they also died, and people would just leave them there. Carcasses were left in the street. And they were left there because uh, horses are massive animals. It would take more than one human being to drag them out. And if you had... So, so uh, one of the issues is uh, humans were working horses to death in the American city. If anyone out there listening is a fan of horses and horse racing... 
you may know that a well-taken-care-of horse might live to be 25 years old right now. Um, in a city like New York City in the late 19th century, the average lifespan of a horse was about two years because Ugh. people were working them to death, hawking goods and services. The notion, um, the, the union, the Teamsters, the reason the Teamsters have the name the Teamsters is before they drove trucks, they drove buggies uh, that were pushed along by, pulled along by horses. Um, and in fact, the Humane Society, um, the roots of the Humane Society is in dealing with the issues specifically relating to horses. So the American, the, the American city in the middle of the 19th century was a very dirty place where there was rotted flesh, there was lots of urine, and there was lots of fecal matter. And because of all of this, there were massive epidemics. Um, I talk about a couple of them in the book. The one that I find uh, most uh, amazing is the yellow fever epidemic in Memphis in 1878, which was so grave, over 5,000 people died, that the charter for the city was actually revoked until it could be determined that it was a safe place to live. Uh, so be, urban life was very, very dangerous for the same reason that being a soldier in the Civil War was very dangerous. Infectious disease was getting much, much worse. And so concerns over hygiene elevated. This is the same time that you start seeing soap companies really proliferate. The advertising for hygienic products becomes far more common by the middle of the 1870s than it had been even 10 years earlier. And the racist advertising was pretty shocking. At the time, you could argue, maybe this wasn't shocking. This was, and this is one of the things I talk about in presenting this unbelievably offensive material, that these images reflected the types of stereotypes that would appeal to people who would want to buy the product. And some of them are extremely overt. Others are far more subtle in ways that one of my hopes with the book is if people read chapter four and look at some of the advertising in chapter four, and they look at soap and detergent ads today, that they'll go, wait a minute, some of this is in more subtle ways, stuff we are seeing here in the 21st century. And every once in a while, there are soap ads and cleanser ads that uh, get in trouble for showing, uh, say, a before picture with an African-American woman and an after picture with a redheaded white woman um, and playing into the kinds of tropes that I show in the book. I realize I'm, I'm not describing this fully. There are the most offensive pictures uh, that I discuss are ones where black skin is literally washed white by soap. And in some cases, it's not simply that the skin is equated with being dirty, uh, but that, say, a young African-American child would be washed to become a blonde, blue-eyed, white child. Um, those are some of the tropes that are not one or two ads, but dozens and dozens of them that have been preserved in the National Museum of American History. And a soap company only recently got in trouble for doing something like that. A couple of them, Nivea and Dove, both in the last three years have gotten into terrible trouble about these kinds of ads. And you'll see uh, throughout the late 20th and early, early 21st century, notions of uh, the like the ancient Chinese secret detergent ads of the 1970s and 80s play into a stereotype of the Chinese being laundry and washer workers, which was uh, a fact of American life when people were highly discriminated against in many 
different occupations. And so this was one thing that Chinese immigrants in the 1880s and 90s could do to make a living. And that, that endures into the, late 19th, into the late 1970s and 80s. Well, they're essentially successful propaganda campaigns to give Americans a visceral notion of clean and not clean when it comes to race. So let's talk about living areas, like your Chicago examples. Yes. One of the things, and again, part of the in- inspiration for the book was thinking of, well, where people are put in proximity to waste, if that's a definition of environmental racism, where are the roots of that? And one of the ways that I started to really think about what we mean by environmental racism kind of inverts some of how the history of this has been told. Just to give an example, um, one of the most important things that have happened has happened in American life since the beginning of the 20th century is the hyper-segregation based on race of living areas throughout the United States. And a really good source for this is Kenneth Jackson's book, Crabgrass America, which I footnote a lot in my discussion of this in Clean and White. From a strong cultural argument where there were majority whites, and you can put that in quotation marks, what does that mean exactly, uh, neighborhoods that were forbidding people who were not white from coming in. This was done frequently at the beginning of the century through a tactic known as the restrictive covenant. Basically, restrictive covenant is this. Uh, Suppose I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant living in a community. Uh, To get in the community, I have signed basically a deed. And within the deed, uh, there are a few restrictions. Like I can't paint my house purple or something like that. We see things like this in neighborhood associations all the time right here in 2018. But one of the dimensions of that was I would have to sign to pledge that I would not sell my house or rent my house to someone who was African-American. This was perfectly legal at the beginning of the 20th century. From there, these types of racist real estate practices grew into the point when the federal government starts getting involved in the housing market in the mid-1930s. It does so using these racist tropes. And this really matters after World War II when most Americans buying houses are using federally insured mortgages. The country is set up from coast to coast with these residential mortgage maps. And in these maps, different areas could be designated as being really good bets for a loan that would be paid off in 25 or 30 years, okay bets, and then absolutely too risky for federal mortgage insurance, terrible bets. The colors used in these maps for the various areas will differ, but one of the most common things in it is the worst area, the high-risk area, would be red. And the definition of the red area is one single African-American or too many people of undesirable social mix, which could include Jews, could include people from Southern Europe, as well as Hispanics and African-Americans. But one single African-American in a neighborhood would basically invalidate the neighborhood from being an area where anyone could get a federally insured home loan. And of course, the banks got into this with the so-called redlining that, that's exactly that's that's the reason why the maps are uh, are red is that any area where it's red, it's got, this is the notion of redlining. The banks are involved, the federal government is involved, and so the notion of I live in New York City right now, and Harlem and Bedford Stuyvesant 
were areas that were very middle class and they have beautiful houses. Uh, they were also areas where African-Americans, many of them, you know, dentists and lawyers, middle class African-Americans lived. And in the period between uh, the mid 1930s and the mid 1970s, the economic wealth in these neighborhoods was hollowed out because the property values went down. Why did the property values go down? Because the system we had developed was explicitly racist. So areas which would have African-Americans were seen as undesirable by the market. This is not the free market at work. This is systemic racism. And therefore, they are forced to stay in areas that do not have good municipal cleaning services or whose water is contaminated. Indeed. Well, and the other uh, nefarious thing that happens because of this is not simply that they're staying in places that have inadequate services, but because of the hyper-segregation as people who are considered white are moving to newer suburban areas, that this uh, the tax base stagnates, the system, the infrastructure stagnates, and the services stagnate. So things actually get worse over time. For example, what happened in Flint, Michigan, is those are systems that were very, very old and have been left to fester. Uh, the tax base had stagnated to the point that to save some money, the uh, state appointed manager said, oh, we've got this old system on the Flint River. Let's use these old uh, pipes and this old system to use it. And of course, they had not been used in decades and they were completely unsuited for giving people healthy drinking water. So it's not only a matter of people were pushed in the areas where the uh, services were bad, but the areas where people were pushed got worse over time. And as that also happened, um, one of the things that happens in most of American life, there are some exceptions, Houston, Texas being a notable one, is uh, metropolitan areas start zoning. And the idea of zoning, uh, which really uh, uh, takes momentum after the First World War, is why would you have a school next to a factory next to a residential area? Why not zone different parts of the city so that all the heavy industries in one place, all the noxious fumes, all the dangerous activities could be separate from a residential area? Also, retail businesses might not want to be near the industrial zone either. That idea really shaped where places uh, were put from everything from shopping malls to liquor stores. One of the things that becomes clear by the 1940s is that zoning enforcement in residential areas might not be done as carefully in majority African-American or Hispanic neighborhoods. So one of the things that you find in Chicago is a great example of this, but it's by no means the only one, is a lot of vice trades start populating there. And these could be, include things like drug dealing and prostitution. The police are simply not enforcing that. But also may include legal and even extra legal dumping and processing of wastes. And so, as I mentioned, Gerald Gutenschwager by the 1950s has seen this really overwhelming pattern of scrap metal businesses in Chicago being put in the city's west and south sides where it's majority African-American uh, residential population. The lack of zoning enforcement in African-American residential communities becomes makes these communities more prone to being dumped on decades before the term environmental racism gets used. So it's interesting because while the populations of color are living amongst all this pollution and dirt, they are the people who are actually hired to clean 
Absolutely. Um, and this is one of the great contradictions. And this is not only an American story. I, I argue this in the, in the conclusion. The double-edged sword of people who clean societies being considered dirty, those are stories that we can analyze in the histories of various other countries. Um, what's particularly galling in the American example is that uh, you see people who had been exploited as slaves doing the, uh, this work during slavery and then are pushed into this work after emancipation and stigmatized in part because of this. One of the reasons why I'm really grateful to you for narrating this book is I go into a lot of demographic data in the book, and I can sum it up basically as this. If you're looking at 1880, 1920, 1970, the people who identify as native-born and white in the census are far less likely to be in any of the cleaning uh, occupations than they are representing the general population, whereas people who are not particularly African-Americans and Hispanics, uh, with Hispanics getting much more uh, represented towards the middle and later of the 20th century, far more likely to be overrepresented as janitors, laundry, street sweepers, scrap workers, and whatnot, than they are in the general population. Now, those people who achieve whiteness, like uh, Jews and Italians, are overrepresented between you know, 1880 and World War II, and then they drop in representation after World War II. So there is some movement going on there. And we have to consider the politicization of this because uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated the day after speaking to the Street Cleaners Union in Memphis. And indeed, uh, one of the things that one of the reasons I really like teaching American history is uh, and we just had the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. It's often overlooked that the last campaign that Dr. King was on was on helping the public garbage workers, the public service workers who were overwhelmingly African-American men get the right to collectively bargain. A lot's enmeshed in there. These men were underpaid, had very dangerous working conditions. And in fact, uh, the strike happens after two of the men are crushed to death in the back of a truck. And this notion that only African-Americans were seen as fit to handle the garbage of Memphis, gave it this dimension of environmental racism that really, I would argue, um, helps define what that movement eventually becomes. No one in the Memphis movement uses the term environmental racism, but there's this notion that there's civil rights and hazard involved. And the African-American churches get involved in thinking about this as a human rights issue. These are the same types of rhetoric that get used 10 years later in Houston, 15 years uh, after the Memphis strike in Warren County, North Carolina, where you have African-American churches also organized labor getting involved and saying these people are shunted upon some of the most dangerous work in American society, and this is being done to them because they're black. And that all comes together in Memphis, and Dr. King talking about how there's a sickness in the mayor and in white Memphis's treatment of these workers and the fact that these workers are not treated with dignity. The phrase, all labor has dignity, was one of the defining aspects of the Memphis strike. The other one would be uh, the slogan that they put on their placards, I am a man, which is to say, I am a human being. It, it was the Black Lives Matter kind of rhetoric of 50 years ago. 
you have to see me not as a walking buzzard, which is uh, what a lot of these workers were called derisively uh, by the people whose garbage they were picking up, but as a human being with the types of rights, responsibilities, and frailties that any other human would have, and why not treat them with respect and dignity? Consumer capitalism. Let's talk about that. Sure. We own so much. How do we deal with it? Because that has created a waste industry. Yeah. I mean, this this is... I got involved with the environmental racism dimension as a, kind of a side uh, bit of the work that I was... I've always been fascinated by waste and how we define it and how we manage it. One of the things about industrial society is we've been able to specialize and develop systems to create more waste and manage it in one way or another, be it putting it in landfills, be it attempting to recycle it, be it incinerating it, be it just dumping it into other people's uh, backyards. And the scale of this has gone up significantly since 1920. I wrote a book after Clean and White, which looks at packaging, specifically aluminum packaging, because we love to uh, recycle aluminum. It's a very good material for recycling. You can melt it down and reshape it over and over again. And aluminum recycling in many ways is a great success story. More than two-thirds of all the aluminum that has been um, put into production since the year 1900 is still there. It's not in landfills anywhere. So we do a great job of recycling it. But because our demands for this material in our computers, in our automobiles, in our um, packaging of things like beer and soda has gone up so much, even as we've start, we've recycled so much aluminum, primary aluminum production since 1972 around the world has more than tripled. We are creating more waste than we ever have before, despite the fact we are trying to do some things to alleviate that waste. Hmm. The politicization of biology. Your book really outlines how that has happened, and very well. It's a racial science in quotes, used to justify slavery and Jim Crow, when in fact what we're talking about is the perception of people as being clean and white or not clean and not white. Yeah, and one of the things that makes history useful for this is, and I tried to set this up in a way that may have been subtle in the first two chapters of my book. As you mentioned in your introduction, Thomas Jefferson definitely had some racist ideas. But one of the things that's interesting about looking at what he said and what he wrote is he was often contradicting himself. There's equality, but maybe not. And he never quite resolves that. And he's really working as an active political thinker at the end of the 18th century and his presidency is the first decade of the 19th century. Because of the tensions over abolition, and as I mentioned, it's very difficult to make the Christian versus savages argument when you have lots of African-American slaves who have become Christian. And the notion, if you have this notion that all souls are equal, it's a moral atrocity to enslave a Christian. And so the abolition movement gains in moral fervor between uh, Jefferson's uh, presidency and the Civil War. And so the justification for slavery starts to harden. I wanted to make the contrast between Jefferson being a bit conflicted to John C. Calhoun, who had no conflicts. He 
argued that African-Americans were biologically inferior. And he would bring these pseudoscientists who would have these wild theories. Uh, and again, Stephen Jay Gould wrote about this in the, his book, The Mismeasure of Man. This is not based on anything that can be replicated in a laboratory. This is truly junk science. But some of these theories would be, okay, the, these people we've been enslaving, these black people, are physically weaker, more anemic, inferior. Or conversely, they might be these strong monster creatures who may threaten and pillage our countryside. You know, pick a lane. Are they stronger or weaker? Um, and th that was never quite done. But one of the things that Calhoun advocated was bringing these types of theories into respect in the halls of Congress. And uh, as vice president, he brought them to Washington, D.C., simply because his interest was to keep slavery going at a time that most of the world was abolishing it. Uh, he wanted the United States to keep slavery. And if there was a physical scientific justification for it, great. And of course, one of the, the terrible legacies of that is emancipation does happen due to the Civil War. But after the Civil War and after emancipation, slavery is gone, but the justifications for it continue to endure to the point that Martin Luther King's reacting against that in the 1960s. But I also argue Booker T. Washington's entire notion of the gospel of the toothbrush and developing these incredibly high sanitation standards, I argue is that Washington has seen uh, Jim Crow rolling up more and more in the South in the 1890s. And he says, well, if African-Americans can just uphold these higher sanitary levels, then we are pushing back and we are defeating this argument. The problem is the argument was never initiated in a truthful way in the first place. No. And though the Tuskegee Institute and the various other historically black colleges and universities, uh, including the technical institutes across the South, developed these incredibly, fantastically rigorous sanitary standards for the body and for the household, the rollback of the vote, the increase of lynchings, the increase of se uh, separate but equal uh, physical space only continued to grow. It was all built on a lie, and the lie continued to proliferate regardless of what evidence was put in to uh, refute it. Much like uh, some of the racist rhetoric in the early 21st century that we're dealing with today, based on lies, uh, but still leading to an informing policy despite that. All I can say is propaganda works. And thankfully to you, Carl Zimring, author of Clean and White, A History of Environmental Racism in the United States, there is pushback. Thank you so much for joining us for CP's Deep Dive. You are making a difference. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with another author of a nonfiction book I've narrated, who is making a difference. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. Chris also composed and performs our theme song. We record at Bayman Studio. To contact us, Chris is at baymanstudio.com. I'm at colleenpatrick.com. Let's make a difference. Mm -hmm.